you will want to get out your sermon outline. It says the God who promises on it. A little different sermon today. We're still in Genesis, but we're going to focus on one verse because this is one of the most important verses in the Scriptures, uh, Genesis 3.15. In that verse, you, you may have seen that uh, on the slides as we went through the songs. Uh, the title slide had that verse on it. And very simply, we, we briefly uh, looked at this last week, but it says the Lord is talking uh, to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and, and making us your people. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray you would give us a greater understanding of who we are, what we do. Help us to understand our sin and our shame and our guilt. Help us to understand our desperation, our great need for a Redeemer and make it clear to us who that Redeemer is and what He has done so that we will know Him more this morning. For this, we need Your grace. We always need Your grace. Please give it to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Arturo Toscanini is widely considered to have been one of the greatest conductors of the symphony orchestra in the 20th century. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to read it. And one day, this famous musical virtuoso had finished conducting a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was a brilliant performance. And at the end of the performance, the audience went wild. They clapped they whistled, they stamped their feet, absolutely caught up in the greatness of the moment. And as Tuscanini stood there, he bowed and he bowed and he bowed, and then he acknowledged his orchestra. And when the ovation finally began to subside, he turned and looked intently at the musicians. And he was almost out of control as he whispered, gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. The orchestra leaned forward to listen. Was he angry? They couldn't tell. And in a fierce whisper, Tuscanini said, Gentlemen, I am nothing. It was an extraordinary admission since Tuscanini had an enormous ego. But then he added, Gentlemen, you are nothing. They heard that message before in rehearsal. But then in a tone of adoration, Tuscanini said, but Beethoven, Beethoven is everything, everything. And by way of analogy, we are nothing. But Jesus is everything. And we should know that from the Scriptures. Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of our faith. He is the grand theme of the Old and New Testaments, the focal point who brings coherence to the whole Bible. We are nothing. Jesus is everything. It's actually the point of that odd verse. 
that we read at the beginning. So the venerable Old Testament scholar uh, Alec Moitcher uh, explains, he says, there's an old jingle which is certainly simple and verges on the simplistic, but our forebears were fundamentally right when they taught that the Old Testament is Jesus predicted, the Gospels are Jesus revealed, Acts is Jesus preached, the epistles are Jesus explained, and Revelation is Jesus expected. He is the climax as well as the substance and the center of the whole. In him all God's promises are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we can utter our amen to God for his glory. And that reality is written large in the book of Genesis, as we've seen over the course of the last few months. The book of Genesis, rightly understood, is the genesis of Christology. What that means is it's the beginning of the study of Christ. We need to understand that the beginning of Genesis is still all about Jesus. And if we fail to get that, then it will become increasingly difficult to understand what the Bible is really all about. We're in a grand story, the story of God. And while God's story is ultimately about him, it's also about you and me and the world we live in. And this story gives us a worldview, a way of understanding life and reality, including human nature, with all of its uh, important features and problems and causes and solutions and the overarching goal for which we're meant to aspire. God's story moves from creation to new creation by way of the fall and redemption. Redemption, in effect, is the renewing of creation. And this pattern, creation, fall, redemption, dominates our study of the book of Genesis and indeed of the entire Bible. We're in the middle of Genesis 3 today. And while we're going to focus on one verse in particular, we're going to look at the big picture of everything we've covered in Genesis so far. And we're going to look at how that plays out throughout the Bible. And we're going to look uh, to see how this biblical story intersects with the story of our own lives. So we start at the beginning of Genesis with creation. It's pretty easy to see that the world that we live in is broken. If you pick up the newspaper from any day this week, you'll read stories about earthquakes and tsunamis, fear of nuclear radiation meltdown and contamination, wars and civil wars in the Middle East, Africa, Southeast Asia, and Latin America, riots over freedom, education, elections, and government spending, protests over brutal oppression, which in turn were brutally oppressed. And on top of that, we know that our families and us as individuals, people are broken. If you pick up any of those same newspapers, you can read stories about violent crime to include murder, rape, armed robbery, slavery, and torture. You can read about every imaginable kind of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, you can read about racism, abortion, euthanasia, the environment, financial debt and distress, and the inequitable distribution of food and water. In fact, they commend you. The Economist recently had an article, the great challenge of the next 30 years will be the distribution of food. And their fear that that will become the ultimate weapon. 
because they expect by 2040 we'll have 9 billion people. We currently have a little less than 7 billion. We currently produce enough food to feed 6.6 billion. And they don't know how we're going to increase the amount of food to feed 9 billion. That would be the challenge, really, for the next uh, generation. But it is a huge challenge. And to put it bluntly, we are surrounded by brokenness. Now, fixing something that's broken requires some knowledge of its design. And I'm probably not the best one to speak about this because I'm not good at fixing broken things. I call the deacons. Some of you do that too. They're very good at fixing broken things. But in the same way, any attempt to address human brokenness requires some understanding of what it means to be human. So we have to go back to the book of Genesis to see how humanity was designed at creation. And the first thing that we see, and I'm going to go through these very quick, there's a number of blanks here. You didn't get an outline last week, no blanks. We're making up for it today. So the first thing we see is to be human is to be created. To be created. If we're honest, we tend to script our lives with ourselves as the main character. And, you know, possibly we add God in some sort of supporting role. You know, for most people, God is a mere extra. At best, he adds to the background action. At worst, he's completely overlooked. But rather than try to write God into our stories, we would be wiser to sit patiently with God our Father and let him tell us his. And we'll surely find ourselves in his story and learn that we are not defined by our hurts and our sins and our brokenness as much as we want to believe that. And as God tells us his story, we have to be willing to let go of the stories we've told ourselves in our vain attempt to make sense of our own lives. We have to let his story rewrite our story and sweep us into something much bigger than ourselves. And of course, his story starts with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So even before creation... There was God. In the beginning, God. Therefore, creation isn't even the beginning of God's story. All of creation, including humanity, begins somewhere in the midst of God's story. He was already there with the story before there was anything else. What does that mean for us? It means that we as creatures don't add the creator to our story. That he has created us and added us to his story. The first thing it means to be human is to be created. Second, we see that to be human is to live. We are to live always before the face of God. Relationship to God is essential to what it means to be human, not just in the Christian sense of your personal relationship uh, to God, but as creation relates to the Creator. Whether you know it or not, he made you to be a fundamentally related to God person. And human life plays out on God's stage before his eyes. Even our thoughts, motives, desires, emotions are all before his eyes. First Chronicles 28, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. 
For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Every single movement of your outward physical life and every single movement of your inward spiritual life somehow moves in relationship to God. Theologians call this quorum deo, living life before the face of God. That's what quorum deo means, before the face of God. Third, we see that to be human is to bear, is to bear. As human beings, specifically, we bear the image of God. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. To be made in the image and likeness of God means that you are designed to represent him, to make him known, to reflect his glory like a mirror, to look like him. God has made every person in such a way that simply being human can make his presence known. And for this reason, you have great dignity as a human being. Not primarily because of your own goodness, but because you're made of the kind of stuff that is capable of making God's much greater goodness visible to others. To be created, to live, to bear. Fourth, to be human is to worship. To worship, we're meant to worship. We're created to worship. We reflect God's glory by our worship of him, which means to hold him as the object of our deepest desires, as worthy of our imitation. Worship is not just singing songs on Sunday morning. It's how we live our lives every moment of every day, every thought, word, deed, feeling, and desire. You worship what you live for, whatever is most worthy of your attention and devotion. Imagine yourself as a human billboard always advertising what you find to be important, valuable, and worthy. What you pay attention to, how you spend your time, the way you work, how you relate to others in your life. All of these things broadcast your heart's worship, advertising what's most important to you. And God created you to broadcast him. And last, we see to be human is to long, is to long, specifically to long for peace and wholeness, what the Bible calls shalom. The prophet Isaiah describes this longing for us in Isaiah 32. And this is just a piece of a much longer passage. But he says, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace Shalom, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Peaceful habitation, secure dwellings, quiet resting places. Where do I sign up? That's God's original design for man. And we have some sense of it. We know it's our home. We long to return. Perhaps it's because of this inborn sense of shalom that we're so grieved and upset by the world that we live in. We see all the evil, the endless tragedies, the countless suffering. We see the evidence of that all around us and even in us. And we feel it in our gut. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Why not? Because of the fall 
because of the fall, Genesis 3. It all began with the appearance of the serpent in the garden, telling a different story. The serpent, Satan, the deceiver, moved in to spread his lies and rebellion to the fledgling human race. He invited Adam and Eve into his way of understanding. He suggested that God is not as good as God said he was. He flatly denied the consequences of disobeying God, Genesis 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God said, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. Serpent said, no, you won't. Seriously, that's not going to happen. And he even suggested there's an advantage in disobeying God. The next verse, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in the first and greatest tragedy in the history of man, Adam and Eve believed the serpent's story. And in their sin, they rose up against God in an attempt to become gods. But it was a lie. God's words had been true. So the consequences of their sin followed God's story, not the serpent's. And immediately their eyes were opened. What happened? They realized they were naked. So they hid themselves from God's presence. What do you think about what a fruitless exercise that is? And they became afraid. And God cursed the serpent. And the woman would now know greater pain in childbearing and frustration in relationship with her husband. The man's work would now be frustrated by God's cursing of the ground. God's people were driven out of the garden. And you read that story, you have to ask, what happened here? How could Adam and Eve go from the sheer bliss of living in a good garden under God's blessing to a state of fear, pain, frustration, and rebellion? What happened? Well, the serpent's story interpreted their lives with a lie. Essentially went like this. Why should you be satisfied living under God when you can live as God? And they believed the lie. And we've been fighting sin ever since. And sin isn't just the breaking of some Sunday school do's and don'ts. It's not the violation of some cosmic morality code. Sin is a personal offense against the Creator. So let's look at how sin affects what God created man to be. Sin unravels God's creation. First of all, we see sin distorts. Five more blanks. They're going to come quick. You have to listen. Sin distorts. It distorts the distinction between creator and created. We wind up putting ourselves at the center of the universe and the center of the story. And we attempt to be God, defining good and evil for ourselves. And we make gods of created things. As the Apostle Paul warns us in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Sin distorts. Second, sin erodes. Sin erodes our awareness of life lived before the face of God. When this awareness of living before God is eroded, we become fixated on living for ourselves. We pursue self-sufficiency, moral autonomy, as if there's no one else on whom we must depend or to whom we must give an account in our lives. We talked about this in the adult Sunday school class this morning. How American that is to be independent and self-sufficient, the rugged pioneer. 
and we end up not seeing our sin, uh, our brokenness. We don't see it in terms of sin. We see our brokenness in terms of biology or psychology or sociology. But we don't see our brokenness in terms of theology, what we know about God. And the problems we have and the solutions we embrace become divorced from God's word and from God's will and from what our Creator says. Sin erodes our life. Third, sin corrupts. It corrupts the image of God and treats it with contempt. And you'll see each of these sin items corresponds to what it means to be human. It corrupts the image of God. The image of God wasn't lost in the fall, but it was marred and distorted. Instead, with the very capacities God gave us to represent him to be good stewards of his creation, we defame his name and vandalize his world and violate his image in others. And we end up imaging not a God of goodness and light, but an image of Satan filled with evil and darkness. Sin corrupts. Fourth, sin changes. It changes. What does sin change? It changes who, what, where, when, why, and how we worship. We don't stop worshiping, but our worship gets distorted, it gets changed, it gets corrupted, because in our sin, we begin worshiping anything and everything other than God. We have this tendency to exalt a substance, an experience, a person, a dream, to the level of God. We define life by what we attain, and that becomes bigger in our eyes than God himself takes his place in our lives. The Bible calls this idolatry. So addictions, for example, they're not just drugs, sex, alcohol, and food problems. In reality, biblically, they're worship disorders. You get that? Addictions, any problem that we have ultimately is a worship disorder. It flows from hearts bent on worshiping created things rather than the creator. Sin changes our worship. And finally, we see that sin spoils. Sin spoils. It spoils shalom. It spoils our longing for peace and wholeness. What began with Adam has spread to everyone, Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The sense of shalom is spoiled not just by the sins I commit, but also by the sins committed against me. Abuse, mistreatment, betrayal, lies, abandonment. And we need to see sin from both sides. Or else we become blind to the suffering around us and callous to the suffering we cause. And most of us don't get that. Most of us at one time or the other have been terribly wounded by the sins of another person. And yet often we sin in response through bitterness or resentment or revenge or promiscuity, and we don't recognize it as sin at all. We blame it on what was done to us. But often when we're sinned against, we respond with more sin. Sin distorts who we are. It erodes how we live. It corrupts the image of God in us. It changes how and what we worship and spoils our longing for peace and wholeness. So it's all pretty depressing. But we do have one thing we can set our hope on. We have the promise. 
Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the woman, from the human race, will ultimately come the seed that will crush the serpent's head. How many of you saw the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ? Good chunk of you, most of you. Whatever the strengths and weaknesses of that film, the opening scene is truly memorable. Jesus is in agony as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and as he's praying, a snake starts crawling over one of his limbs. And suddenly Jesus stands up and slams his foot down right on the snake's head. That symbolism is right out of Genesis 3. And by going to the cross, Jesus will ultimately destroy the serpent, this devil who holds people captive under sin, shame, and guilt. He'll crush the serpent's head by taking all the sin, shame, and guilt upon himself. In Christian circles, we call Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelion. That's a fancy Latin word for the first gospel, the first announcement of the good news. This side of the fall, the picture is dark, with threats of doom. But now there's a promise that from, uh, that from the woman's seed, from the human race, will arise one who will crush the serpent's head. In fact, that promise is extended in the New Testament from Christ to Christians. The Apostle Paul writes, Romans 16, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There is a sense in which Christians, by living under the gospel, being reconciled to God through the gospel, are destroying the devil and his work. But we're not there yet. We've taken a close look at creation and the fall. But there's one piece left, and it's the most precious piece. And that's redemption. Redemption, you see the rest of the Bible. It's about that. If you look in your outline, Genesis 4 through Revelation 22 covers a little bit of ground. So how can sin be overcome and shalom restored? To answer that question is to define redemption. And no Christian should be surprised by the biblical answer. Jesus himself is our redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption is not a series of tasks that we take or rules that we follow or just another 12-step program. It's not the forced motions of religious uh, ritual or practice. No human effort can accomplish redemption for yourself or for anyone else. We need a redeemer. Just as God's story is ultimately not about you, but about God, 
So also redemption comes not from you, but from God. God's story is about redemption, but more specifically, it is about a redeemer. Jesus is the main character of the story, and his person and work are the center of the plot. A while back, near when we started uh, Genesis, uh, maybe you remember I told you that Genesis was written in the context of Exodus. Who led Israel during the Exodus? Moses. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis? Moses. First five books of the Bible were written by Moses as inspired by the Holy Spirit when? When Israel's wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And even though God had blessed Joseph's family, we'll see that at the end of Genesis, uh, by greatly multiplying their numbers, Israel had experienced, when this was written, more than four centuries of slavery and oppression. And now they're in the desert. They've survived the plagues against Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the exodus out of the land of Egypt. They have some big questions to ask. Who is this God? How could he defeat the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt? How could the God of such a no-count slave people humiliate the gods of Egypt? And why us? What claim does this God have on us? And it's not just the awesome display of power and the grand rescue that called for an explanation, because presumably the redeemed are now in some way obligated to the Redeemer. The rescue hints at a relationship. And so Israel is asking for the story that led to this event wanting to understand who and why God came to rescue them, but also who he was and what else he's done. You have to understand this, that through Moses, God is telling his people who he is. He's reintroducing himself to Israel in the story of Genesis. And in so doing, he's telling them, very clear and unmistakable terms, how he, God, in spite of the might of Egypt and its gods, was able to deliver them, to rescue them, and to redeem them from slavery. And these people understood that. They understood sin. They disobeyed God. They understood idolatry. These are the people who made the golden calf. These people understood the promises. They're the children of Abraham. And they understood their need. They'd been in bondage. They'd been enslaved. They'd been oppressed for 400 years. Of all people, they needed a Redeemer. Now they had a Redeemer, God himself. And yet we look at today. We're people in bondage, in bondage to sin. We're people enslaved, enslaved to all kinds of addictions. We're people oppressed by evil, dominated by abuse. Some of you have lived lives filled with pain, confusion, and fear. Some of you have lived lives that have been spinning out of control. Some of you are overwhelmed by guilt and shame. All of you, all of us, are desperately in need of a Redeemer. Carolyn Ahrens is a Christian musician. She's also a writer for Christianity Today. And uh, last month she wrote a particularly applicable, applicable piece I've been waiting to share with you. So here it is. It's a lesson from a headless snake. My Carolyn Aarons, she writes, As a kid, I loved when the missionaries on furlough came and brought special reports to our church. Sometimes they wore exotic foreign clothing. They almost always showed a tray of slides documenting their adventures. 
There's people here who don't know what a tray of slides is, okay? It's like the PowerPoint presentation of 30 years ago. If they were from a dangerous enough land, the youth in our congregation would emerge from our Sunday stupor and listen intently. There's one visit I've never forgotten. The missionaries were a married couple stationed in what appeared to be a particularly steamy jungle. I'm sure they gave a full report on churches planted and commitments made, translations begun. I don't remember much of that. What has always stayed with me is the story they shared about a snake. One day, they told us, an enormous snake, much longer than a man, slithered its way right through their front door and into the kitchen of their simple home. Terrified, they ran outside and searched frantically for a local who might know what to do, and a machete-wielding neighbor came to the rescue, calmly marching into their house and decapitating the snake with one clean chop. The neighbor emerged triumphant and assured the missionaries the reptile had been defeated. But there was a catch, he warned. It was going to take a while for the snake to realize it was dead. See, the snake's neurology and blood flow are such it can take a considerable time for it to stop moving even after its decapitation. For the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while the snake thrashed about, smashing furniture, flailing against walls and windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. And sweating in the heat, they felt frustrated and a little sickened, but also grateful that the snake's rampage wouldn't last forever. And at some point in the waiting, they had a mutual epiphany. She writes, I leaned in with the rest of the congregation, both queasy and fascinated. Do you see it? asked the husband. Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage. But never forget that he's a goner. The story captured, she she continues, the story captured our imaginations because it was graphic and gory. But it haunts me because I've come to believe it's an accurate picture of the world. We are in the thrashing time. A season characterized by our capacity to do violence to each other and to ourselves. And the temptation is to despair. We have to remember, though, it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. And though we wrestle with the brokenness that plagues our world and ourselves, we do so not with grim resignation, but with hopeful defiance. We face our addictions and afflictions not with white-knuckled hope that someday we'll be healed, but rather with the assurance that we are living slowly but surely into the healing already obtained on the cross. There is still waiting. In some cases, the healing may not come to fullness until we're face-to-face with our victor, but come it will, guaranteed. She goes on, I've been trying to figure out what all this means with respect to the way we deal with evil and injustice. In linear human time, perhaps the safest thing to do is batten down the hatches and wait somewhere secure till the thrashing is over. But one of the mysteries of living in God's time rather than our own is that although the end of the story has already been determined, somehow he is still using us to write it. Because Jesus lives in us through his spirit, we're called not just to anticipate the overcoming, to be, to be a part of bringing it to fruition. 
So we're called to fight poverty, oppression, greed, and malice in the world and in ourselves. And we're invited to live in light of the reality that greater by far is the living God who is within us than the dead snake thrashing about in the world. Greater by far is the living God who is within us than the dead snake thrashing about in the world. Never forget this, almost done. It is Jesus who crushes our enemy. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It is Jesus who delivers us from slavery to sin. Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It is Jesus who overcomes the power of the evil one. Revelation 12, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And already Jesus is healing our wounds and covering our shame and freeing us from the bondage to sin and temptation. We have the promise. The promise is for a redeemer. And we have that redeemer. His name is Jesus. And unlike Adam and unlike Israel and unlike you and me, Jesus always remembered his future. In the face of satanic temptation, he didn't buckle because he had nothing to hide. And as he set his face to go to the cross, he said these words, John 14, 30. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He never forgot the end of the story. That story begins right here in Genesis. That story is all about God, and it's all about grace. Thank God that you are in his story. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you made all things. You are the creator. You were in the beginning, and we were but dust. You gave us everything. We threw it away. Your judgment was just. We deserve far worse. But in the midst of the brokenness that describes life on this earth, you gave us the promise of a redeemer. You have shown us our need for this Redeemer, you have given us this Redeemer, whose name is Jesus. Lord, thank you that you've added us to your story. That we're in the story of creation, fall, and redemption. The story that points us at every step to Jesus. Lord, grant you, grant that we would know you better. 